Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And typically, I would have a news episode for you on today, which is Thursday, April 15th, 2021. But this week got away from me, big time. On the bright side, we have a really cool thing coming up early next month that um, Tech Stuff is taking part in that I think you guys are really going to dig. But that doesn't help me today, does it? So instead of a news episode, we're going to have a little bit of a classic episode here. I thought because I'm feeling so very old as I try to <laughs> to make sure I have these episodes ready for you guys, it would be good to kind of take stock. And by that, I mean, we're going to listen to a classic episode called Is Carbon Dating on the Way Out? This episode originally published on August 10th, 2015. Hope you enjoy. This comes from Nikhil Cardale, and I do apologize that I'm sure I mispronounced your name. The request was, could you do an episode explaining this? Carbon dating is pretty useful, so this effect seems relevant. And uh, uh, Cardale actually uh, commented on and, and included another tweet from Real Scientists that included an article titled, Will Our Fossil Use Ruin Our Ability to Use Carbon Dating as a Scientific Tool? And this is really fascinating, the idea of using carbon dating uh, and how that that method might be in jeopardy because of the use of fossil fuels. So I thought I would go into that, explain what carbon dating is and why it might not be an accurate means of telling how old something is uh, after too long. So going into the article, it's about how the enormous amount of carbon emissions we generate could make carbon dating an unreliable means to determine the age of certain types of materials. But to understand how that's possible, we need to know how carbon dating works first. So we're going to do a carbon dating 101. Now, the first thing that we have to talk about is carbon-14. So the 14 in carbon-14 tells us it's an isotope of carbon. Uh, this particular isotope must have eight neutrons because carbon has six protons. You can change the number of neutrons in an atom. That's the different types of uh, isotopes atoms may have. But you can't change the number of protons an atom has without changing that element. So carbon has six protons. And if you change that number of protons, you change the element itself. It acts, reacts differently uh, in chemical operations and uh, is no longer carbon. So carbon-12 is the most common form of carbon that we find. It has six protons and six neutrons. Then you have carbon-13, which is six protons and seven neutrons, and both of those are stable forms of carbon. That means they don't decay. So if you have carbon-12 or carbon-13, you put it in a box, and you leave for, I don't know, two billion years, and you come back, you're still going to have carbon-12 or carbon-13, because they remain stable, they do not decay. But carbon-14 is different. It is a radioisotope. Radioisotopes are also known as radionuclides, and these are uh, isotopes of a particular atom that have an unstable nucleus. These isotopes undergo what we call nuclear decay, 
And in that process, they release some excess energy in the form of stuff like gamma rays and or subatomic particles. Carbon-14 undergoes what is called beta decay. So when it decays, one of the neutrons in the nucleus spontaneously changes into a proton, an electron, and an antineutrino. The nucleus gives the boot to the electron and the antineutrino, but the proton stays behind, which means the atom no longer is a carbon atom, since, again, we mentioned that atoms depend upon the number of protons in the nucleus. So the carbon-14 decays into nitrogen-14. And nitrogen-14 has seven protons and seven neutrons. Uh, Also, by the way, one of the few stable elements that has both an odd number of protons and an odd number of neutrons. Uh, And nitrogen-14 is stable. It makes up the vast majority of the nitrogen found naturally on Earth. Uh, More than 99% of the nitrogen found on Earth is nitrogen-14. So radioactive decay occurs naturally within these isotopes, and it's a spontaneous occurrence that's really important to remember. Carbon-14 has a radioactive half-life of about 5,700 years. There's some confusion about what that means, I find, in day-to-day conversations with people who haven't had science in a while. You guys who have recently had this in science class, you're rolling your eyes right now, but for adults who have not taken a science class in a long time, this might require some some refreshing. So half-life of 5,700 years, what does that mean? It means if you have a given amount of carbon-14, after 5,700 years or so, you'll have only half of that carbon-14 remaining, the other half having undergone decay, radioactive decay and turning into nitrogen. Now, this doesn't mean that all the carbon-14 will be gone after another 5,700 years, nor does it mean that carbon-14 has a full life of 11,400 years or anything like that. In fact, what it really means is that after another 5,700 years, half of the remaining sample will have decayed, leaving you with about a quarter of what you started with, and another 5,700 years after that means you'd be left with about an eighth of that sample, and so on. Carbon-14 exists naturally on Earth in trace amounts. Before the 1940s, the carbon-14 on Earth was created through a natural process. Once in a while, cosmic rays, these very high-energy particles in outer space, would collide with an atom in our atmosphere, our upper atmosphere. And this collision would end up emitting a high-energy neutron that then could collide with nitrogen atoms that are also way up there in our atmosphere. Now, cosmic rays are high-energy subatomic particles. They originate outside of our solar system. Usually, they're emitted by supernovae of massive stars. And these subatomic particles are primarily atomic nuclei and high-energy protons. So this collision of the high-energy neutron with the nitrogen forces a proton to leave the nucleus, and the N14 changes to C14. So in other words, nitrogen-14 turns to carbon-14. So instead of having seven protons and seven neutrons, the new atom has six protons and eight neutrons. The proton that was broken off from the nucleus zooms off with an electron, so you get one proton and one electron. That means you have an atom of hydrogen. So again, what's happening is a high-energy neutron collides with nitrogen-14, forces out a proton, the proton and an electron hightail it and honeymoon off as hydrogen, and the uh, incoming neutron 
joins the party, and now you've got carbon-14. So pre-1940s, carbon-14 is rare because of two reasons. It undergoes radioactive decay, so over time it disappears, and it's produced by an event that's not super frequent, though it's also not uncommon. So it does happen regularly enough that carbon-14 is uh, replenished, but it's a very small overall percentage of the carbon here on Earth. We've got some more to say about carbon dating in just a second, but first let's take a quick break for our sponsor. Now, living things here on Earth absorb carbon through various means, and some of that carbon is carbon-14. So it may be that you know you eat a plant, and that plant has some of the carbon-14 in it. Now, you have some of the carbon-14 in you. And if we know the ratio of carbon-14 to the stable form of carbon-12, we can look at materials and analyze them to see how the ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12 in the material stacks up to the standard ratio. With living things, this becomes a matter of looking at how much carbon-14 is not there. All right, that's a little confusing. Let me explain. So when a living thing is still alive, it accumulates carbon at about the same rate it loses carbon. So carbon cosmic rays produce this carbon-14 frequently enough that the ratio between carbon-14 and carbon-12 remains steady. So the percentage of carbon-14 to carbon-12 is fairly standardized. But when a living thing stops being alive and turns into a not-living-anymore thing, it stops accumulating carbon. So it has the carbon that it has inside of it stays, that's it, you're not losing anymore, you're not gaining anymore, except for carbon-14, because carbon-14 undergoes radioactive decay. So over time, some of that carbon-14 starts to convert to nitrogen. So that means if you can look at the remains of a living thing and detect the ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12, you can get an idea of how long ago it was that it stopped taking in carbon, as in how long ago was it that this once living thing died. It gets a little more complicated than all that, but here's the basic rule. If we want to be really precise, here's the equation we use. To determine the age of a sample of material, you have an equation where you take the natural logarithm of NF divided by NO. Uh, that, in turn, is divided by negative 0.693. And then you multiply it by T uh, uh, one-half, so one-half T. The natural logarithm is a specific logarithm applied to this equation and other things as well. Uh, NF divided by NO actually refers to the percentage of carbon-14 in the sample compared to the amount found in living stuff today. And T times one-half is the half-life of carbon, so that's 5,700 years. So it is a lot easier to understand this if we take a specific example. So let's say you've got a sample of some sort of material and you have determined that there is 5% of the amount of carbon-14 in that material compared to what you would find in something that is alive right now. So you take a sample of a living thing, and then you take the sample of the thing you're testing. You see that the thing you're testing only has 5% of the carbon-14 you would find in living things. That means you would fill out the equation with the natural logarithm of 0.05, 
divided by negative 0.693, and you multiply that whole, that uh, result to with 5,700 years. The natural logarithm of 0.05, by the way, in case you don't want to whip out your calculator, is negative 2.995732273355. If you divide that by negative 0.693, you get 4.322845993589358. Don't dial that number. If you take that number, the 4.3, etc., and you multiply that by 5,700 years, you end up with 24,640.2 years, meaning the stuff you're looking at died somewhere around that time frame, give or take 30 to 100 years. So somewhere around 24,640 years ago is when that thing no longer breathed or lived or however you want to define it. Uh, by the way, this approach does have a limitation. Anything older than 60,000 years is pretty much out of bounds. Carbon-14 just isn't a reliable means of dating that sort of material, and we have to rely on other methods. So carbon-14, because of the decay, once it gets to very small amounts, it's very difficult to narrow it down to a specific time. And if it's long enough, there won't be any carbon-14 in it at all. All the carbon-14 will have decayed by then. You can't use carbon dating if there's no carbon-14 left. So to actually test the carbon-14 concentration, you first have to take the sample, uh, whatever object it might be, you have to remove part of it, and typically you would apply some chemicals to the material, uh, usually a very strong acid wash and a strong base wash. That's to remove all the contaminating materials that could end up giving you false readings on carbon-14. Then you would burn the sample within a glass container to capture the carbon dioxide that is emitted when you burn the material. And then you would analyze the carbon dioxide to find out the concentration of carbon-14. So you can see that this approach has a big drawback. It ends up damaging whatever it is you are attempting to date in the first place. And that's why some particularly high-valued items go without being tested because the perception is that even a small sample of that original piece would be too much damage to to uh, make on this item. So certain items are considered very precious, and there's a big resistance to using carbon dating because by definition you're going to be damaging the material. Now, there are several lines of research that are exploring possible non-destructive means of using radiocarbon dating. Uh, there's one that uses plasma oxidation and the use of non-destructive washes to clean samples of those contaminating humic acids, which would lead to errors if they remained behind. Uh, but those are still largely in the testing phase and aren't the common means of using carbon dating. Also, keep in mind that we use this method to estimate the date of things made from organic materials, like the Dead Sea Scrolls. But this estimation is based upon when the materials were harvested. So in other words, whenever the living thing that the materials came from stopped being alive. It doesn't tell us the date of when the artifact was actually produced. So it's possible that you could come across an artifact, like a scroll, and you use carbon dating on it and find out that the scroll material uh, is 2,000 years old, meaning 2,000 years ago, whatever the scroll was made out of stopped living. 
But it doesn't tell you about the contents written in the scroll. It's possible that the contents were added to the scroll much after the living thing stopped being alive. Still, it's a pretty good bet that the two are within the same neighborhood of time rather than someone held on to blank scrolls for a few centuries before finally jotting something down. All right, so all of this is cool, but how did we even figure out radiocarbon dating would be a possible way of figuring out how old something is? Well, some early discoveries were made in the 1930s at the Lawrence Radiation Laboratory in Berkeley, and you probably remember that if you've been listening to tech stuff. It factored heavily into the discussion I had with Ben Bolin about the Manhattan Project. So Franz Curie, an American physicist, observed something really interesting when he irradiated a cloud of air in a cloud chamber. Uh, he used neutrons to uh, to irradiate that cloud, and he saw proton recoil tracks that indicated something was losing protons. So he concluded that the neutrons that he was using were colliding with nitrogen-14 and producing what was believed to be a form of carbon as a result, with hydrogen being the other product of this collision. His work was further explored by physicists like Tom W. Bonner, W. M. Brubaker, W. J. Bircham, and Maurice Goldhaber. Now, collectively, this laid the foundation for the simple equation of a high-energy neutron plus nitrogen-14 produces one hydrogen atom and one carbon-14 atom. Then you had Enrico Fermi. We talked about him in the Manhattan Project. And his work showed that the cross-section of a nitrogen-14 atom was much larger than other materials. And that suggested that neutron and nitrogen collisions might happen fairly regularly in nature, as long as there were a supply of high-energy neutrons. All right, we got a little bit more about carbon dating. And then it's back to reality for me, I guess. So Serge Korf, who was a physicist who was born in Finland and whose family immigrated to the United States in the early 20th century, he discovered the phenomenon that cosmic rays interact with atoms and produce high-energy neutrons in the upper atmosphere. So Fermi's prediction and Korf's observation were starting to kind of uh, coalesce here. The observations convinced scientists that the neutrons themselves were not cosmic rays uh, because the neutrons had a lifespan of just 18 minutes, and therefore... A neutron wouldn't be able to survive the long trip through space. They must have been something else first. So they said the neutrons had to be a byproduct of another interaction. A cosmic ray must be interacting with something in the atmosphere. That interaction caused this high-energy neutron to be emitted, and Korf hypothesized that these neutrons could then interact with nitrogen-14 to produce carbon-14 in the upper atmosphere. Now, it was Willard F. Libby who came up with the idea that since carbon-14 is generated at a steady rate due to cosmic ray interactions in our atmosphere, you should be able to use it to measure how long something has been dead. Libby would measure the value of carbon-14's half-life at 5,568 years, give or take 30 years, which became known as the Libby Half-Life. And Libby himself would be awarded the Nobel Prize in 1960 for his work in radiocarbon dating. All right. So that's the history of radiocarbon dating and generally how radiocarbon dating works. So why is it in trouble or what could possibly be causing confusion with radiocarbon dating? Well, there are two big things we need to talk about. And one was one that I've alluded to a couple of times. I mentioned that 
you know, pre-1940s, you had a certain level of carbon-14 that was pretty standard. But the nuclear age really messed things up for us. Uh, they made carbon-14 dating a bit tricky. Starting in the 1940s, we began testing nuclear bombs. Now, these bombs released a lot of energy upon exploding, partly in the form of high-energy neutrons. You can probably see where this is going. Some of those high-energy neutrons ended up interacting with nitrogen-14 atoms, which meant that it produced carbon-14 atoms as a result. So the concentration of carbon-14 increased in the wake of nuclear bomb testing. So anything that died after the 1940s actually has a higher concentration of carbon-14 than the stuff that died before the 1940s did, even you know at the time of death. According to Professor Nalini Nadkarni of the Evergreen State College, the 1950s saw a 100% spike in carbon-14 coming into the atmosphere. In 1963, the United States and Russia agreed to stop above-ground nuclear testing, and the levels of carbon-14 in the atmosphere gradually dropped down to their normal levels, but that means there's a blip in the carbon-14 radar between the 1940s and 1963. So if you put yourself in the shoes of a future archaeologist, radiocarbon dating becomes unreliable because the levels of carbon-14 could be deceptive. If the thing you're measuring died during the era of nuclear testing, it might appear to be younger than you thought because there's a higher concentration of carbon-14 in its sample than you otherwise would have expected. So it may seem that something died in 20 15 as opposed to 1963. That's just an example. Now, to the article that prompted this episode in the first place, that's a different case. Researchers published a study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences about how the use of fossil fuels is further making radiocarbon dating less reliable. And this time it's not an excess of carbon-14. It's actually the opposite problem. Fossil fuels have no carbon-14 in them because they are fossil fuels. This is billions of years old, so they're far too old for any carbon-14 to remain. Remember, that carbon-14 is decaying over time and turning into nitrogen, so eventually all of those carbon-14 atoms decay. So burning a fossil fuel releases carbon dioxide, and the carbon in that CO2 has no carbon-14 in it. It's all carbon-12 or carbon-13. So the more fossil fuels we burn, the more we dilute the concentration of carbon-14 that's in the atmosphere. So stuff from the nuclear age tends to look younger than it really is because of the higher concentration of carbon-14. Stuff from the later ages of fossil fuel use will look older than they really are because carbon-14 has been diluted. So according to the study, fresh organic material in 2050 would contain the same amount of carbon-14 relative to carbon-12 as something dating from 1050. So you have a thousand years of doubt in any radiocarbon dated samples. Uh, you would be, look at the two samples. If you, if all you had were minuscule samples of two things, and one of them was a t-shirt that was made in 2050, and another was a piece of cloth that dated from 1050, and you did radiocarbon dating, you'd get the same result. This is not good if you are trying to figure out how old something is. Heather Graven, who authored the study on fossil fuel emissions and the effect on radiocarbon dating, says that if we were to reduce carbon dioxide emissions drastically in the very near future, 
the effect on future radiocarbon dating would be equivalent to inserting a 100-year error on top of any estimation. If we don't drastically reduce emissions, that error range will continue to grow over time. One thing that the concentration of carbon-14 tells us is how much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere comes from the burning of fossil fuels. So as we see the concentration decrease, we know that's because proportionally, more carbon-12 is being released into the atmosphere, diluting the already tiny concentration of carbon-14. So that's useful for scientists who are studying climate change and pollution, but that's not exactly a happy story, is it? So, what are our options if carbon dating becomes unreliable? Well, that depends on what you're trying to analyze. If you're looking at inorganic stuff like rocks, you don't need to use carbon-14 in the first place. That would be pretty much useless. You would use something else like potassium-argon dating, which is useful to estimate the age of rocks that are 100,000 years old or younger. And if that's not a big enough range, you can actually use uranium-lead dating, and that'll let you estimate rocks uh, between uh, 1.4 and 5 million years old. There's a lot of different options if you're trying to date stuff. When it comes to organic materials, however, it's a lot more tricky. Radiocarbon was a great tool, but if it becomes unreliable, we're going to have to use other methods like contextual clues and uh, other uh, items that are helping us connect things to dates. So this is a big problem. Uh, I guess you could argue that it's a big problem for future generations, and perhaps the records we leave behind now are so uh, so complete, they're so voluminous, I guess is the best word, that future generations will likely have more than enough material to determine when something originated from our time versus earlier times. But the point being that the way we're interacting with our world is changing this fundamental ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12. And that means that a really brilliant means of determining how old something is is not really going to be an accurate measure for very much longer. So it's kind of a bummer. Uh, obviously, for things that are much, much, much older, uh, it'll, at least in the short term, not be that big of a deal, especially if we can relate it to other items that we, we already know the age of those items. It, it won't be as destructive as saying we can never use radiocarbon dating again. We just have to keep that changing uh, ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12 in mind so that we make sure we're making accurate measurements. Hope you enjoyed that classic episode of Tech Stuff. Again, my apologies. I've got a lot of things I wish I could have talked about, like the fact that there's now a patent for a retractable lightsaber blade thing. I, I really want to talk more about that, so maybe next week. But in the meantime, if you have any suggestions for topics I should tackle on Tech Stuff, let me know. Send me a message on Twitter. The handle is TechStuffHSW. I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 